0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll discuss Florida folk music legend, Gamble Rogers, with Bruce Horowitz, author of the book, Gamble Rogers, A Troubadour's Life. He created, uh, based on Faulkner's influence, a a mythical county called Ocklawaha
1: County and it was based in Florida, and it was populated with people that uh, he grew up with in his childhood or people that he experienced during his summer spending in the Coochie Valley in the
2: hills of Georgia. We'll look at Florida history from the British perspective. Here they had acquired this huge territory and understood so little about it that they really needed to start exploring the territory, essentially, kind of starting from scratch. And we'll talk with
0: Amanda Hardiman Griffiths, director of the Florida Folklife Program. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: One little chap had a mishap Broke off his horse's head And he wept for his toy Then cried for joy When he heard his brother say Do you think I could leave you crying When there's room on my horse for you so climb up here, Jack. And stop your crying. We'll mend your horse with glue. When we grow up, we'll both be soldiers. Our horses will not be toys. And then perhaps we'll remember when we were just two little boys. When
0: people hear the name Gamble Rogers, depending upon their point of reference, they either think of the prominent Florida architect or the revered Florida folk musician, or both. Bruce Horowitz is author of the book Gamble Rogers, a Troubadour's Life, winner of the Charlton Dubow Book Award from the Florida Historical Society and the Bronze Medal for Nonfiction from the Florida Book Awards. It's interesting because while I was looking for
1: information about Gamble Rogers, the musician, uh, I would always stumble into information about Gamble Rogers, the architect, his father. In fact, there was a book published about his architecture uh, from the same publisher that published uh, uh, the book about Gamble Rogers, the musician. So uh, he, he grew up with architecture pedigree. His, his father was an architect. His grandfather was an architect. His brother, who he was very close with, uh, became an architect in the family firm. And so there was architecture pedigree throughout, and uh, it was quite a change for Gamble to take a career path to become a folk singer with uh, so many architects in the family, because that was clearly what was expected of him and what it was anticipated he would be uh, in his profession.
0: Gamble Rogers, the musician, grew up in Winter Park, Florida, surrounded by his father's Mediterranean revival and Spanish revival style buildings and homes.
1: He was very popular in high school. He was the uh, president of the senior class. He was the editor of the school uh, yearbook, and he attended Winter Park High. Uh, Early on in his uh, high school years, though, it was discovered that he had a a back problem, an arthritic problem uh, that would really plague him the rest of his life, and it was a form of arthritis that uh, potentially uh, threatened to have his spine fused. And so he required treatment, and his physical activities in high school were limited, so he spent many, much of his high school years uh, after school flat on his back. And that's where he really became uh, familiar with c- the guitar playing. And that's where he practiced the guitar. And he took that time to read everything he could get his hands on, the, 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 the dictionary. He would read classics. He would read books, anything he could get his hands on. And uh, those were very formative years for him when he spent those hours reading books, practicing the guitar. Uh, he would refer to that later on as tales of a misspent youth. But that was just a matter of his his physical limitations.
0: Gamble Rogers graduated from Winter Park High School to attend the University of Virginia, where he studied architecture and philosophy. That's where he met acclaimed Southern writer William Faulkner, who had a significant impact on Rogers' life.
1: While Gamble was at the University of Virginia, he would play guitar at fraternity parties. He was clearly interested in music. And Faulkner was there as a scholar in residence for a, a period, and... Students would line up in front of Faulkner's office to come visit with him, and there are various versions of the story of how Gamble actually met Faulkner, but what's clear is that Faulkner had an influence on him. Gamble indicated to Faulkner that he was studying architecture, but his heart was in writing and in music, and um, he he sort of got a lecture from from Faulkner about uh, you should follow your heart and do what you really want to do, and Gamble, as a consequence, among other factors, dropped out of school just short of his graduation to pursue a, a career in music.
0: His quest to have a career in music eventually led Gamble Rogers to Greenwich Village in New York City. In the early 1960s, there was a thriving folk music scene there that included Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Judy Collins, and others. Bruce Horowitz.
1: When he dropped out, he he made a go of, of trying to make it as a musician in Tallahassee with a small club called the Baffled Knight. And while it was successful, it really wasn't making providing a living. So he moved back to Winter Park and, and tried uh, sort of working in the architecture of the family architecture firm by day, but moonlighting in clubs and in folk festivals and traveling around on weekends and so forth and, and taking breaks to go play the folk circuit. And so he spent a lot of time in, in, in Greenwich Village and actually rented a place or stayed at a place uh, that was uh, rented, being rented by Phil Oaks, the, the legendary uh, folk singing journalist uh, from, the, from the early 60s. And Phil Oakes' place was a place that all kinds of musicians would show up at. Uh, Dylan was there all the time. And uh, Gamble played the folk circuit in Greenwich Village, played all the clubs, and associated with a lot of the folk musicians at that time. Uh, then he would return back to Winter Park and take a stab at the, the family business, trying to, you know, balance both careers at the same time. But his heart was clearly in music, and his heart was clearly in writing songs and and making folk music.
0: Longtime listeners to NPR may be familiar with Gamble Rogers' music, but may not even know it. Once Gamble became a polished performer, his, I guess they call
1: them, front porch monologues were were so intriguing and so detailed that they didn't have a place on regular radio or regular TV, but they did find a home in public radio. And so he was a frequent guest on All Things Considered, and his guitar picking was so extraordinary that many of his uh, guitar picking pieces, were used as musical interludes in between segments uh, on NPR. So you would hear this extraordinary guitar picking uh, in between segments on NPR, and that would sometimes be recordings of Gamble Rogers.
0: Along with Will McLean and Frank Thomas, Gamble Rogers was one of Florida's best-loved folk musicians. His musical storytelling style was a fixture at the annual Florida Folk Festival and around the state. Gamble had a really unique style. First of all, he was a beautiful guitar player, just unbelievable. It was patterned after the Merle
1: Travis style of uh, choke-style guitar picking. And Gamble was just uh, extraordinary at that. He, he really mastered that technique. Uh, but he also had an amazing way of weaving stories and songs together. He created, uh, based on Faulkner's influence, a, a mythical county called Ocklawaha County, And it was based in Florida, and it was uh, populated with people that uh, he grew up with in his childhood or people that he experienced during his summer spending in the Coochie Valley in the hills of Georgia. And he would take the stories, he would change the names, he would uh, use the stories to create a feeling of what it was like to be a Southerner. And he would weave these stories in with these beautiful ballads. Um, His work is often referred to as Southern Gothic tales, so he would write these these dark uh, songs, Um, love songs, songs about the murder, songs about love Um, and then he would write these tender ballads as well and he would weave in these hilarious stories and juxtapose them in the course of a performance that just made his performing remarkable and and really unforgettable
3: If you want to buy chickens in Ocklawaha County there's one place to go and that's Arendelle's Purina store on the square in Snipes Ford and chickens ain't all you can get at Arendelle's, you can get philosophy just go around the corner of the building to the loading ramp which fronts the city square for it is here upon this humble proscenium, that there has gathered time out of mind a distinguished circle of rusticated sages and philosophers who through the assiduous cultivation of dialectic and discourse and the subtle implementation of aphorism and epigram have put in place a philosophy of existence posited on one dazzlingly simple revelation. Life is what happens to you while you're making other
0: plans. When people discuss Florida music, Jimmy Buffett is often the first person mentioned. Bruce Horowitz points out that Jimmy Buffett is a big fan of Gamble Rogers. Gamble was a mentor to so many people. Uh, he he would he really became the go-to guy in the Florida music scene.
1: And so uh, he would take people under the, under his wing and he would promote them. And he would take them on tour with them and let them you know play at places that he played. And among those was Jimmy Buffett. And Jimmy Buffett uh, pays multiple tributes to Gamble in his in his book. He dedicated his uh, Fruitcake CD to Gamble's memory, where he said that that uh, you know Gamble was his mentor. He was the student, and Gamble taught him a lot about performing. And so, uh, and when Jimmy Buffett opened his first uh, Margaritaville Cafe in uh, Key West, uh, Gamble was the first person to play there. So uh, they had mutual respect for each other. Uh, But Gamble really did be, he he really mentored others. He took great pleasure in bringing others to the stage. Um, He was such a humble human being that he didn't seek so much for himself, but um, he he had a tremendous place in in, in Florida uh, folk history.
0: Gamble Rogers had an untimely death in 1991 while trying to save a tourist from drowning. He enjoyed
1: camping, um, and uh, he was actually on a camping weekend uh, in October of 1991 and it was at the time, it was the Flagler Beach State Recreation Area uh, off A1A, and he was camping with uh, his wife and some friends, and it was the middle of the day on a Thursday when a Nor'easter came up, and a young teenager came running off uh, to his campsite indicating that her father was caught in the Florida surf and was, was having trouble. And so Gamble, who, who couldn't swim, didn't think for a minute. He, he stripped down to a t-shirt and underwear and and uh, blew up a nearby air mattress and went into the rough surf to try to rescue this uh, Canadian tourist and um, was unfortunately drowned and didn't make it, and the, the tourist didn't make it as well. So in an instant, this wonderful musician, humanitarian, great person— um, his life was taken from him at, at a very, um, j- just you know, almost instantly. So there was no farewell ca- concert, no, no final tour, no time to say goodbye to the family. Um, and so it was really a, a heroic um, and not unexpectedly heroic, uh, but tragic end for, for, for Gamble at age 54. The park was subsequently named in his memory, and it's now uh, referred to as the, the Gamble Rogers Memorial Park in Flagler Beach.
0: Those who know Gamble Rogers' music are often dedicated fans, but he never gained the widespread recognition that many feel he deserved. There was even discussion of removing his name from the park dedicated to his memory. Bruce Horovitz.
1: A couple of years ago, in fact, when I was in the middle of researching the book, there was, there was actually a uh, a small movement of some some local politicians that wanted to change the name back to the original Flagler Beach State Recreation Area, not because there was anything bad about Gamble or anything wrong with Gamble. Uh, you really can't find anybody to say anything bad about this this remarkable human being, but they claimed that people just didn't know who he was, and um, they felt like that the it would be better for tourism if Flagler Beach was back as the name of the park, but the legislative delegation made it very clear that they had n- no intention of changing the name, that the name was an act of the state legislature back in in 1992, and it was going to remain the Gamble Rogers Memorial Park, and rightfully so. But it's one of the reasons for writing the book and for trying to get his name known to people, because he really is an iconic figure who contributed so much to Florida history, so much to Florida folklore, and people should really know who he is. And so that's one of the reasons uh, for writing the book and trying to get his name out there.
0: Horowitz believes that Gamble Rogers' name should be mentioned in the same breath as Tennessee Williams, Zora Neale Hurston, and other icons of Florida culture. He's
1: actually in the Florida Artist Hall of Fame, and if you look at the the members who are in that Hall of Fame, it includes Marjorie Kenan Rawlings, Ernest Hemingway, uh, Jimmy Buffett, and uh, Gamble is, is in, enshrined in that group. It wasn't always easy. He, his nomination for his name was was not originally accepted. It took a couple of tries. But he did have people like Stetson Kennedy and um, Jimmy Buffett write letters on his behalf. And, uh, you know, after he died, there, there was a real effort underway to preserve his legacy and and bring his name out to people so that they really realized the important impact he had on Florida culture, uh, Florida music, the Florida folk scene, and so there is, uh, in addition to the, the the state park named after him, there's a middle school in St. Augustine that bears his name. And uh, there is, of course, the annual Gamble Rogers Music Festival in St. Augustine. And again, he's enshrined in the Florida Artist Hall of Fame with, with so many others, uh, like Frank Thomas and and, and other uh, Florida legends.
0: Bruce Horowitz is author of the book Gamble Rogers, A Troubadour's Life, published by the University Press
3: of Florida. I'm going down to Florida I'll get some sand in my shoe or maybe California I'll get some sand in my shoe i ride the Orange Blossom Special and I'll lose
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben Biassi, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the Symphony No. 13 of Franz Josef Haydn, which we're listening to now, was composed in 1763. That's the same year that the British took control of Florida
2: from Spain, and you have a document here related to that, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. After the end of the French and Indian War, also known as the Seven Years' War, the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1763, and essentially that transferred ownership of Florida to the British, and it began what we call the British period, which lasted for 20 years, from 1763 to 1783, during the time of the American Revolution. They remained loyal to the crown during the Revolution, but it had ended centuries of Spanish rule, and it was really a a fascinating time because it changed the demographics drastically. And in 1763, your average 18th century British person probably knew very little and understood very little of world geography, not to mention Florida. So they knew nothing about this small peninsula on the other side of the ocean. Many of these people would probably never visit. So for the common person living in London at that time period, they knew very little. And those who were at least familiar with Florida weren't that happy about the deal. In fact, several people within the British Parliament who thought the British should have held on to Havana rather than trading it back in exchange for Florida. So they really thought it was kind of a mess, but they just understood so little about the territory and about the peninsula itself, including the people that lived there, the indigenous inhabitants, the geography. They knew nothing about the natural ports and harbors and rivers because it had been controlled by Spain for so long. So they were really in the dark. Here they had acquired this huge territory and understood so little about it that they really needed to start exploring the territory, essentially, kind of starting from scratch. Well, the Florida Historical
0: Society Archive has a first edition copy of the first British history of Florida, which is an historic book in its own right.
2: Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at is one of two original copies that were published in mid-1763. It was written by a gentleman by the name of William Roberts, and William Roberts was a professional writer, although he never actually visited Florida. So he lived in Britain, wrote and published in London histories of different regions, and included this one of Florida. And like I said, it was printed in 1763, really at the beginnings of British occupation. And the volume itself, and, and they're very blatant about this, it was a propaganda tool. It was written to try and attract new immigrants to Florida. They wanted to develop this colony. So they had already essentially signed the papers, you know, so they now own the territory. They needed to do something with this new colony. So this was really the first attempt at trying to attract People to come to Florida. When the new governor of Florida, of East Florida rather, came into office in 1764, they started taking out advertisements in newspapers in London. And this book really became the foundation for the government's actions to try and populate the territory. And when we look at these volumes, they're actually in pretty good shape. One of our copies is complete. It includes all of the original maps and the inserts. The second volume is a little more worn down. You can see the binding is actually gone, and several of the maps have been cut out, which was a common practice amongst the antiquarian booksellers that would cut these maps out, which is an important point. The book is fascinating because it gives us really the first British understanding, at least, of the Florida territories. But it was also important because it was printed, or published, rather, by a gentleman named Thomas Jeffries. For those who study Florida history, we would probably understand Thomas Jeffries or have probably heard his name. He was the foremost British cartographer in the late 18th century. And it's his maps that grace the pages of Roberts' book. And they're they're really beautifully done. In fact, I'll flip to a couple of the examples. We have a great image of the harbor at Pensacola. We have another great map of St. Augustine. Here's one of the Bay of Espíritu Santo, which we now refer to as Tampa Bay. And then we have this fold-out map of the entire territory that Jeffries published in 1763, and it became the go-to map for Florida. And as you can see, it shows the southern portion of the state now in uh, a series of islands, which we know to be incorrect. But at the time, they hadn't actually explored the interior, so their understanding was, well, these river systems probably crossed right through the peninsula. Of course, they were wrong, and we, we know that later on. In fact, there were later British cartographers, including de Brahms and Bernard Romans, who created much more scientifically accurate portrayals of the geography of the territory. But this volume is really the first. And because it's the first, it makes it important in Florida's historiography.
0: Now, you keep the original first edition copies of this book locked in your
2: archive vault with the other very rare books, but
0: there's a reproduction on your
2: library shelves. Along with the two volumes that, as you said, are housed in the vault, we also have a third volume that was printed in 1976. So the original 1763 version, there was only one edition printed. It's still a fairly rare book, so to have two copies is really wonderful, and to have one that's complete is great. But in 1976, the Bicentennial Floridiana Facsimile Series, which was part of a Bicentennial Commission of Florida to reproduce historically significant colonial period documents and books, this was part of that initiative. So they reproduced a really wonderfully done facsimile of the original 1763 volume, and I also pulled that so we can kind of look at it and get some comparisons. So for a lot of modern scholars and folks that come in to do research, oftentimes they'll look at the facsimile rather than handling the original, unless they're, of course, studying the original volume. But Dr. Robert Gold, who was a preeminent Florida history scholar, wrote this wonderful introduction, talks a little bit about the people, the players, and the time and place of the British period and how that fits into the historical of Florida, but it also includes this wonderful facsimile, including letters, all of the fold-out maps Thomas Jeffrey produced. They're all here in this original volume. So most people, when they reference the book, they're actually probably handling the 1976 facsimile.
0: And this bicentennial facsimile is a historic book in its own right, really. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben Biassi is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO. To see the William Roberts book we've been discussing, you can come to the Library of Florida History or check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Amanda Hardeman Griffiths is the Florida State Folklorist and Director of the Florida Folklife Program. She spoke recently with Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science.
4: I recently attended the Florida Folk Festival in White Springs, Florida. It's one of the longest-running folk festivals in the United States. While at the festival, I talked to Amanda Hardeman Griffiths, the current Florida State Folklorist. She talked to me about the Florida Folklife Program and its goal to preserve and promote Florida's traditional culture.
5: The program was established by the Florida Legislature July 1st, 1979. Um, But before that, two years before that, uh, Peggy Bolger came down from Kentucky to conduct a survey of Florida traditional arts. That's for the entire state. So the product of that survey was a comprehensive folk arts directory for the state of Florida. And that went into informing the programming at the festival. Uh, so based on her fieldwork, she was able to then, you know, bring new and exciting and dynamic and diverse acts to the, the stages here at the Florida Folk Festival. Uh, What happened was the state was just really jazzed with what we were doing here, uh, what the folklorists were doing here at the park, and decided to establish the Bureau of Florida Folklife. We are the only folklife program in the nation that had its own state bureau. Uh, At one time, we had a staff of 13 or 14 folklorists. We were by far the largest folklife program in the nation.
4: Peggy Bolger, Florida's first state folklorist, laid the foundation for the Florida Folklife program. Since the program began, it's been a training ground for folklorists.
5: We've had this, uh, you know, just amazing, amazing, like, array of folklorists who've worked with the program. Um, Tina Bukavallis was with us for 13 years. Prior to that, she did the first survey of Miami-Dade County. Could you imagine being tasked with coming from not being a Floridian at all, she came from out of state, for a contract position, a short-term contract, I think it was like six months, to do a survey of Miami. As diverse and dynamic as Miami is, um, and then of course bring those acts to the Florida Folk Festival the next year. After Tina, we had folks like Bob Stone, Robert Stone, who went on to um, coin the term "Sacred Steel" and uh, write, you know, the book on Sacred Steel, and then go on to do tons of research in cattle ranching in Florida. He uh, co-produced the exhibit Five Centuries of Tradition, a cattle ranching exhibit that traveled, it went out west to Elko, Nevada, traveled all over the state of Florida and is now based at the Florida State Fair. Uh, also went on to publish a book about the cattle ranching traditions in Florida. Um, so these people, they've not only uh, contributed a lot to the program, but their contributions have kind of like echoed out beyond the program.
4: Over the years, the Florida Folklife Program has worked with thousands of traditional artists through a wide range of projects including the Folklife Apprenticeship Program.
5: The Folklife Apprenticeship Program is designed to provide an opportunity for a master traditional artist to take on an apprentice for a three, six, or eight month apprenticeship. So it gives uh, the opportunity for for artists to share knowledge, skills, and techniques in that um, face-to-face, you know, traditional way that things used to be shared. Um, the, The whole idea with the program is that it fosters that once more.
4: Folklorists with the Florida Folklife Program have worked tirelessly to capture Florida's folk traditions. As Amanda Hardeman Griffiths explains, their preservation efforts would not be possible without the contributions of tradition bearers who share aspects of their culture and keep it alive for future
5: generations. The work that we do is so much about the people. It's so much about the, the tradition bearers themselves. It's not just work, that's the key thing here. It's not just a nine to five is that you're entering someone's life when you when you come and learn about their culture and their traditions and you can't just step out and say, you know, bye, thanks, thanks for that interview, it's over. You know, once you once you let them in and they let you in, like you, there's some sort of bond that's formed. So so this is way beyond the work that I do as a folklorist. This is this is creating human connections with each and every interview, with each and every interaction. Um, So what has sprung out of all of this work, not just for myself, but for all of the folklorists who've worked in this state, um, is these lifelong friendships with incredible people.
4: For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and listen as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle.